Drew Zagorski here. Looking for a home loan? There's only one name you need to know. Teresa Springer of Movement Mortgage. Teresa brings decades of experience in lending, so she and her dedicated team will get you the right loan for your specific needs and probably save you a bundle of time and money in the process. How do I know? She's been my mortgage maven for years. So, no matter where you live, if you're looking for a home loan, call Teresa Springer and the Mavens at Movement Mortgage at 360-798-4161. Or get the ball rolling by going to TeresaSpringer.com forward slash you don't say and clicking on the yellow Get Started button. Again, that number is 360-798-4161. 4161 and the website is teresaspringer.com forward slash you don't say. Phonetically, that's there's a springer.com forward slash you don't say. Teresa Springer, NMLS 70667. Movement Mortgage LLC supports equal housing opportunity. NMLS ID 39179. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Movement Mortgage LLC is licensed by California Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act, number 4131054, Oregon ML 5081, Washington CL-39179. Interest rates and products are subject to change without notice and may or may not be available at the time of the loan commitment or lock-in. Borrowers must qualify for all benefits. Movement Mortgage is a registered trademark of the Movement Mortgage LLC, a Delaware limited liability company. Phew! You know, aren't there enough things that cost an arm and a leg when you're running a business? There's really no reason you should be spending five grand or more for a website unless it's doing some pretty whiz-bang stuff. With Squarespace, you don't have to, even with some whiz-bang. With plans starting as low as 12 bucks a month for a personal website, Squarespace has a library of professionally designed templates to start from with easy-to-use tools that let you customize your site to fit your brand. So get that site going today. Just go to youdon'tsay.net, look for the Squarespace logo on the homepage, click on it, and when you check out, put in the code PARTNER10, again, that's PARTNER10, you'll save 10% off your first subscription on a website or a domain. And if you need help with your site, drop Left Brain Right Brain Marketing a call at lbrbm.com. Squarespace, it's the shortest, most cost-effective distance between here and success. This is Drew Zagorski. You're listening to You Don't Say. Thanks for that. And don't forget to follow and review us wherever you listen to podcasts or at youdon'tsay.net and share with your family, friends, and everyone else you know. So here's the story. I was recently talking to my oldest daughter who's long dreamed of taking her talents to New York City. She's restless and not very happy where she's at. So I said to her, she needs to write her story and it's her story. Nobody else's. One of the greatest joys in my life is watching her and her sister create their own stories and seeing what they'll do to amaze me next. I'm so proud of both of them. I laid all that out before I voiced my papa-based worries and concerns to the older one for such a move. I told her that I needed to speak them to her and that I hoped she'd hear them. But as I said, this is still her story to create. She's gone through a lot, more than most people her age. She's pursued things on her own. When she's wanted to go somewhere or try something or do something, she's always made it happen. I remind her of that often. She's fierce and stubborn and wildly talented and knows where she wants to go and doesn't give a damn what anyone thinks about it. You know what? I love that. So, okay, back to that Papa-based worry, New York. Very different from where she grew up out here in Portland, Oregon, and pretty different from Chicago, where she currently lives. She's been saving up for the move for a while and has some solid job leads and a crew of friends living there already. But there's the COVID thing. We're not out of the woods yet. In fact, 
The numbers are rising, though a vaccine is imminent. But in this case, imminent could mean five months or more, at least for normal people like her and I. COVID is a nasty bitch. It's sneaky. It's devastating. It can kill. That's the thing I most warn her about and ask her to weigh in terms of the timing of her move. But she is who she is, a force of nature. I just pray that she'll land in one piece and be healthy through it all. So yeah, we all write our own stories, and those are being played out irrespective of the COVID thing. Life goes on. Fearless people are living out their lives, and yes, they're doing it while also respecting the science of what's happening around us and their fellow humans. Now here's a story that, when I heard it, I thought it was straight out of a movie script. A kid grows up on the border of Texas and Mexico, bilingual, of course. Fresh out of high school, he joined the El Paso Fire Department as a firefighter and EMT. But this kid was always looking for another mountain and armed with a brilliant intellect, wanted more and went into paramedic school. Then, as usually happens, love intervenes. Boy meets girl. Boy falls in love with girl and follows her as she pursues her education and career. They marry. Then after that, he started taking nursing classes and jumps into that career. He followed his wife to her family's home base in Buenos Aires, where she recently won the Premio Clarín Award for her recent novel and where she wanted to pursue her writing career. He wasn't working at the time and he got kind of bored. So what else was he supposed to do? He joined a traveling circus slash theater company. He was a natural thespian. He traveled the country with that troupe. He pushed fellow performers to go off script and improvise. Everyone loved it and him. But he was restless after a while. He felt like he was just wandering and looking for the next mountain. His marriage eventually broke up amicably, but he was looking for the next act. Then he found a new friend and an English teacher and discovered he could be passionate about that. So he applied to a program to teach language, was accepted, and bounced around Spain doing that. Teaching lit a fire in him, and he decided to go back to school to pursue his graduate work. So where else to go? Look for the mountain, right? Apply to the University of Notre Dame, of course. Now the guy is pursuing a doctoral degree at one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the country, if not the world. He decides to go visit his girlfriend in New York. Then, COVID hits. The city goes into lockdown. He's a prisoner for the foreseeable future of the pandemic. He decides he needs to do something, and he sees the nursing shortage, and though it's been years since he was in nursing, he decides to walk directly into the COVID storm and volunteer. George Ascarate isn't a guy who stands still. Like my daughter, when he sees the next chapter of his story, he goes after it. The rest will work itself out. So today I'll be talking with George to hear his story and some of the brutal realities of how the chapter on COVID nursing played out. So George, thanks for joining me today. Uh, still out in New York. Hope you're doing well. Uh, let's start. I am. Thanks. Uh, good. Let's start with your 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 in graduate studies. You decide last spring winter to go back to New York to visit your girlfriend. And then the pandemic hits. Now you're in lockdown. You reached the decision to walk into that storm and volunteer as a nurse, but you, you weren't hired right away, right on the spot, right? So, so basically what, what happened was since um, I like before then I, I hadn't worked in about six years, my last travel assignment um, in an ICU was in, was in Merced in California, like Northern California, uh, back in, I think it was maybe 2014. 
Okay. Um, so, you know, obviously it, it was kind of, it was, it was the, the point of like applying for a job at a point when they were desperate enough to just be like, okay, we'll just kind of take anybody who's coming. So I got hired like during the first part of the surge in, in early April, like in, in early April, I got hired, but then um, they deferred kind of my start date. I got hired at Presby and then I interviewed and like immediately, I, I think what it was is just on paper, it looked like I hadn't been working, but I mean, basically I'd been working in healthcare since I was 18, you know? Right, so, right. You know, I, I feel like all that stuff is just ingrained in me. It's just automatic. At, at least like resuscitating people doing CPR, you know, those are just algorithms that you just kind of memorize and you just, you know, that you, you just, depending on the situation, you just automatically go into that. Right. So you didn't, you didn't have um, to like so go through a whole new, um, you didn't have to go through a whole new learning curve, right? It's just kind of knocking the rust off a little bit. That's, that was exactly what it was. Um, and I think as soon as I interviewed with somebody, the clinician was like, oh, okay. You know, she, she was, you know, very comfortable with me. She was like, oh, like, you, you know, you've obviously have a lot of experience. So she, um, they agreed to hire me. And then the surge, I guess it just wasn't, wasn't as bad as they had hired for, I guess, at least at Presby. Uh, Cause I think that they just kind of sucked up like the, the big chunk of people of nurses that were coming. And then, and then they, they canceled my contract. And then I, what was it? Maybe a week later, you know, it, it, it was kind of this moment where I was like, okay, I don't think I'm, I'm ever going to get hired, you know, just because I had gone through a series of, of interviews and then, you know, they just didn't, they just didn't hire me. Right. Um, and then at one point, um, one of the recruiters that I was talking to was like, hey, there's this, uh, you know, there's this little community hospital in Brooklyn uh, out in Midwood. If, if you, if you'd be interested, um, you know, they're really, they're really hurting and they need people. Right. Um, I'm going to send your, you know, if you don't mind, I'll send your resume. And I sent it. And then, you know, she called me back like within 30 minutes and she was like, Hey, the, the, the chief nursing officer wants to talk to you. Um, and I got him on the phone and you, I, you, you know, it was like the craziest interview I've ever had because essentially he was like working as he was talking to me. Like I could hear all the alarms beeping in the background and, you know, and, and basically he was like, do you know, do you know how, how long, have you worked in the ICU? Do you, you know, are you comfortable working with ventilators? Uh, and do you know what LevaFed is? You know, that those were right. like his basic couple. And, you know, I said yes. And he was like, okay, can you start tomorrow? And and that was it. I mean, that very next day I, I showed up, he had kind of this, you know, makeshift uh, hospital ID printed out right. for me. And then, and then, you know, it just hit the ground running from okay. there. So um, you you get the call back, you walk into the COVID ward and you're there for a little bit. What what goes, what went through your head when you realized, I mean, you see on the news, but it's different when you walk into it and you realize the scope of what's going on. Did you kind of think to yourself, holy shit, I stepped into something more than I expected or or what was going through your head? Um, I definitely feel like... And I, I, there was a lot of that, you know, because, you know, up until that point, I, it's not that I, I denied that, that, you know, I was in denial about the pandemic. It was just that it, it just hadn't become real for me. Right. Um, other than, you know, ju- just the fact that like every 20 minutes, you know, you could hear ambulances zipping by. Um, and, and, you know, that just went well on into the night. You know, I, I just remember that, that sound, you know, just hearing sirens all the time. And then just uh, like the the frantic experience of being in, in in the 
the grocery store, you know, trying to buy groceries and everybody was, you know, in there masked and, and terrified of other people and, and just the encounter with other people on the sidewalk, you know, in those early days where people just like cross the street if they saw you coming. And so it was that which kind of made me suspect, okay, there's something going on. I don't know exactly what it is. And then showing up to the, to the, the hospital that day, cause it wasn't just the ICU. It was, it was the whole hospital, you know, like, um, New York community was, is, is a tiny, you know, it's 152 beds. They have, uh, usually they have an eight bed ICU, which is pretty small. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, for the most part, if, if they get somebody who has a heart attack, you know, they, they, they send them on to a different hospital. You know, usually it's like a, you know, a feeder hospital for, for Maimonides, for MIMO, you know, right. or, or they'll just send people on. You, and, and when I showed up, I mean, almost 85% of the hospital was intubated, was on a ventilator. So wow. like, you know, a good chunk of that whole hospital, you know, there were floor nurses who like don't ever work with patients who were intubated, who had patients who were intubated on the floor. So uh, it, it was, you know, it was, it was shock. Uh, and also like, you know, there was the moment where I was like, what the hell did you, did you get yourself into? You know, right, like, right. Sure. like, oh, can you do this? You know, are, are you able for this? Can, is this, is this something that you can even handle? And, and that just, you know, that whole, that whole time period, you know, th- those questions kept on circulating in my head. Right. And so the, f- the first day you're there, um, you meet a guy by the name of John Ferguson, who's also a nurse, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he was, he was one of the more, I guess, senior people there. I mean, he'd only been there maybe two and a half weeks beforehand, but, uh, it was essentially him and, and, and this other guy, Vance, who was like our supervisor. Um, right. and, and, you know, I, I would just be working with them for the most part. Right. And so they just kind of put you in the deep end of the pool, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, I remember walking in and, you know, like in the article, it says, you know, I, 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 I remember walking in and, and, and just seeing all the patients, all of them were intubated. All of them had various, you know, like vasoactive drips, you know, like, like, you know, medications to keep their blood pressure up. And then, okay. um, you know, the, the supervisor was like, okay, you're going to take care of these three patients on this side. And then, you know, and like, as I walked in, one of the, the patient on the far end just flatlined and died. And he was like, oh, never mind, Don't take that one. That one's dead. And, and, but it, it just, you know, just the, yeah. I mean, just the way he, you know, he, he just didn't even make a big deal out of it. He was like, okay, they're dead. And then he just moved on started giving me a report on these two other patients. And then, and that was it. And then he just showed me around the hospital, showed me how to, you know, type things into the computer, how to get medications and, and, and then it was, you know, go. Wow. Heavy, heavy stuff for day one. <laughs> yeah. So let, let's jump back in time a little bit, back to your youth in El Paso. Growing up, you lived near the Franklin Mountains and you you kind of got this thing that you would do and you'd always be looking to the mountains. And that's kind of your life philosophy, right? Yeah, I, I'd say I, I feel like in El Paso, that was always the way I'd orient myself to kind of know where I was. And it, I, it was always my reference point. I feel even now, like no matter where I am, I always, I always feel like I'm, if there are no mountains, I miss the mountain. And, and, right. and I'm always looking for something to kind of orient myself visually. So you're, you're going through high school. You struggled a little bit academically, sounds like, right? Then you graduate. And you go to the El Paso Fire Department as a firefighter and EMT. What drove you to that? And what did the time there teach you? Um, I feel like definitely my time in, in the fire department was definitely the most formative. I feel like it was very intense. It was, and, and I just grew up, 
I grew up so much in those, in those six years that, you know, essentially I felt like I was just a big kid going in, you know, I, I mean, I was 18, right. I was a kid, but I think my, my decision to go into the fire department was, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a, the best, you, you know, like when I think back, like when I think now, okay, I'm at Notre Dame. Um, and I think back and I'm like, if I would have tried to get into Notre Dame straight out of high school, it would have been complete. I would have never gotten into, into Notre Dame as, as an undergraduate. I was like the right. worst high school student. I, you know, I was just really bad. I didn't really pay attention. I didn't really care. Right. Um, and you know, I barely graduated from high school, but one of the things that I remember is that, so my dad's a welder and I, I, you know, basically grew up hanging out at the shop that he was at, you know, just around a bunch of guys who were welding. And it, it was this huge shop kind of on the outskirts of El Paso. It wasn't even El Paso yet. It was, it was in El Paso County. And it was just this huge plot of land with horses in the back. It was kind of a ranch, but it also had this big warehouse space where everybody was welding. And one of the, uh, the owner, his, his son was a firefighter. He was a captain in the El Paso fire department. And I just remember, you know, just talking to him one time. I did, he didn't really like me and I didn't really like him, but, but I just remember being attracted to kind of like the stuff that he would talk about in his lifestyle. And I just thought, okay, maybe I'd like, I'd never thought about being a firefighter. Right. And, and so I thought, well, what the hell? Like uh, the, the test was coming up and I figured, you know, okay, I'll study, I'll take the test. Uh, I'll try to get in shape and see if I can do it. You know, cause I, wa I wasn't going to go to college. Like I, I didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind. Like, you know, my parents couldn't afford it. I, and I just didn't think I could do it. It right. just, you know, in my head, it was like, it's, it's for like all the, you know, that the people in the top 10% of the school were all going to college and nobody else really was. They were either going to the military or, or working like at family jobs or doing something else. So I took the test, I scored pretty high and then, and I got in, um, I got, I, at least like I advanced to the physical test and then there's just like this series of tests and then you eventually go through the training academy. So, yeah. So, so the training was, it, it was, it was hell. It was like hell for six months. Um, they shaved our heads, you know, they, they had it's us, like you know, camp, doing all sorts, you know, going to the it was, it was, it was, yeah, it, it was very much, it was very much like, uh, e even the instructors were like, this is a paramil paramilitary experience is the way they described it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I just, it was like a lot of like, you know, mind games, you know, to, to try to get you to, um, you know, I, I guess essentially to break you down and then build you back up so how and, and kind of break a lot of bad habits that we have. Uh, I joined in 2000 and I resigned in 2006. Okay. So good so stretch about, of time. Yeah. Yeah. Good stretch of time. And during that time you met Bettina Gonzalez, right? Who eventually would be your wife. Yes. I, I met her the last, uh, two, two years, the last two years in the fire department, maybe last two and a half years. And, and I think that she, she was there doing a, a, a bilingual. So UTEP is the university there and they have the only bilingual MFA they will they have one of the few bilingual MFAs in the country okay, and fine arts, right? Yeah. And creative writing. So, so they were trying to get people to, to come from all over Latin America, all over, you know, Spain. And, you know, her class had people from Colombia. She's from Argentina. And, you know, there was a good a cluster of, of, of writers that, you know, they brought to the border. And, and I met her in that time period, you know, one, one of my good friends uh, was in the program with her and we met and we started dating and then, and then right around that time, it was like, okay, well, what are we going to do from here? So she, she applied to a PhD in Pittsburgh and she, well, she got in and then I was like, okay, well, I guess we're going to Pittsburgh. <laughs> so, so I resigned and uh, figured I'd go and try to get into nursing school there. 
So, yeah, she was a pretty accomplished person when you met her. And did that kind of drive you to further your education? Or was it just that while you were in the fire department doing this EMT thing and the paramedic thing that you've, you were kind of drawn to a nursing uh, career? Um, I think what happened was that as like p- part of being in the part of being in the fire department, you have to do um, they make us go to college. Like you have to do like some basic um, college courses. Mm-hmm. And it was just at the community college. It was just like a really basic thing. And I, I realized that I, you know, like I, I started taking those classes and I was like, okay, I can do this, you know? And, and, I, and I thought that, you know, I was doing pretty well. And it just seemed like something, you know, like suddenly I was like, okay, maybe I can go back to college. Um, so that, I guess that kind of planted the seed in my head of, of going back. And, and, and I just started thinking about it from then on out. Right. So then you get, get head into the nursing program. Let's go back now, back to the COVID unit and the routine there is, is just grinding, grinding work, right? 18 hour days, really not a whole lot of breaks. You you always end the day wishing, thinking that there's more that you had to do that you couldn't get finished. Not to mention, you know, all of the suffering that's around you and you're having to, to, to kind of get in and help these people and advocate for them. What talk to me about that kind of a grind. Um, I feel like, so in, in I, I think like in my experience as a nurse, there's, there's like usually two kinds of days, you know, there's usually the day where, you know, you're, you, you, you're doing all like everything that you need to do and you kind of get ahead. And then, you know, both of your patients are kind of stable and you reach a point where, you know, you're, you're ahead of things and you're, you're, you know, you're sometimes you're sitting around kind of reading through the history and you have like a lot of downtime, you know, especially if you, if you can get your patients to be stable. And then there are other days where you're just drowning the whole day, you know, you're drowning, you, you, your patients are sick. You know, one of them, you know, is trying to crawl out of bed because they're confused. The other one is, is dying and, and you're, you're, you're just trying to, you know, balance and, you know, and, and try to catch up. I think with COVID, the, the, the big difference was that it was just always drowning. I just felt like I was just drowning all the time and any, any sensation of getting ahead or, or, you know, of doing something uh, or accomplishing anything was just mm-hmm. gone. You know, it, it would just, you know, you would do something and you would, you know, you, you'd get like a, you know, a, a, an IV in, you'd get um, all medications that the patient needed. You give them their antibiotics, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd, you prone them, you do all sorts of things, interventions to make them better. Uh, and they'd seem to improve and then they would just, and then everything would be gone and they die, you know, and, and it, it was just that, like, where's my, where's all this work going? It's just disappearing. Right. Did that ever make you think to yourself, I, I just got to get out of here? No, I, I don't, not while I was working. Um, I definitely felt that like, you know, there, there were a lot of times in the beginning where I'd wake up at night and I, you know, I'd have like, you know, my stomach would be rumbling and I'd be just kind of, you know, I'd wake up and my heart would be pacing and I, and I would just think like, okay, uh, you know, did I do everything right? Did I forget Mm -hmm. anything? Um, you know, and, uh, but I never, I never thought, you know, I, I I feel like a a lot, a big part of it was, a big part of my decision to go back to work was just the thought of like imagining the days when I was working and we needed help and we needed more staff and nobody was there. 
and and just thinking like like oh wow like the nurses like i just immediately thought i was like the like being a nurse during this time has to be you know awful right um well and and that it was just more of like a sensation a feeling of solidarity yeah and well i mean there's that part of it just the grinding of the work itself and keeping your head straight on that but i mean this disease is an insidious bitch it you know because it (laughs) incubates for days where you may not realize you have it and you're in it every day up to your knees going home. Doesn't it take, don't you take that home with you and thinking at the end of the day, is this the day that I got it? Yeah, definitely. For sure. In in that first time period, like it, uh, I, I was just, uh, you know, like we had no idea. I mean, we still really don't have like a, a, a great idea of what, you know, exactly how COVID is, is contracted or like whether it's airborne or it's droplet, you know, I feel like that is always shifting. Um, you know, but in those early days that, you know, there were times where like, I forgot to put my face shield on and I went into the room and I just thought, okay, that's it. I got COVID, you know, and, and just yeah. like that, that fear constantly of, of being just yeah. afraid of panic. But, but then like after some period of time, I started to think, well, you know, in the hospital, at least like, you know, we have this kind of philosophy of universal precautions where you just kind of treat, you know, like you, you treat, you know, every possible interaction, you know, of a patient who could potentially have COVID, you know, as if they had COVID. So, so you would just always wear a mask, you know, would always wear gloves, you know, wash your hands. So I just thought, okay, as long as I'm meticulous in my interventions, you know, I can't really control you know, what comes in from the outside, but I can control my own behavior. So I was like, okay, I need to focus on that. I need to focus on, you know, that was one thing that John had is that he had this routine that he stuck to where he'd always wash his hands, like in a very particular way, he'd always clean down his workspace. And I just thought, okay, I need to figure something out like that to at least like cope, you know, it's, it's like, it, you know, it's like sublimating, you know, you're, you're like, okay, I need to cope with this in a, in a, in, a, in like a positive way and like think of a different way to, to confront this anxiety that I'm feeling. Right. Right. And so you're not the only one probably feeling that in the ward. The everybody who works there probably has these thoughts and ideas and they're all under the same stress and and psychological uh, pressure. What sort of support does the hospital offer any type of emotional support teams or psychologists or to help you and your um, co-workers deal with these kinds of thoughts and the frustrations? The hospital that I'm at right now, um, it, so I'm at Elmhurst right now. They they did start like kind of a network. Um, they do offer, you know, they have a hotline. They have a lot of like support for healthcare providers and they're trying to make like a peer-to-peer network, you know, so that we can talk to other nurses. But I think in, in that, in those beginning stages, you know, they, the hospital just didn't really have a whole lot of resources and they, they were just mm-hmm. kind of grabbing with what they could. Um, I think that most of the supervisors that were there were just trying to make the hospital function. And, and, and I just don't think that anybody really thought about that in the beginning stages, you know, and, right. I, and, and I didn't really think about it either, you know, uh, to be honest, like in, at the beginning, uh, I think I, I was so, you know, just nervous about like doing a good job that I didn't even want to talk about, you know, what I was going through. I just was constantly like either reading a book about like, you know, you know, like ARDS or, or like, you know, pulmonology and things like that to try to like, you know, just refresh myself and be like, okay, I, this is what's going on. So when you and I talked prior to this, I brought up the, uh, uh, idea of PTSD and do you have any kind of concerns about that going down the road for yourself? 
Um, I, I, I do. I, I think that, I mean, I, I think that not just for me, but just for everyone, I feel right, like, right. um, I'm starting to kind of, uh, realize now that there are certain situations, there are certain situations that remind me of, of those initial days at the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because, uh, I guess for, since June, since July, probably since July to about, you know, early October, um, you know, we'd rarely have like a COVID patient in the ICU. We would maybe have one or two uh, on average. Um, but it wasn't until recently where we'd get the patients that, you know, come in and then they just start to deteriorate because it, it's, it's, a, it's like a classic, you know, like a patient will come in, they'll have a little trouble breathing. And then, um, you know, their, their pulse ox, which is like just an oxygen sensor that, that, that gives you a percentage of oxygen that's reaching like their, their, their fingers, like the distal parts of their body you know, it gives you like a percentage. And and what ends up happening is with COVID, like the patients will, their oxygen saturation will be low, you know, 91 is like the bottom of, of normal and it'll be like 88, but they'll be fine. They'll look fine. You know, their, their skin color looks okay. They won't tell you if they're having trouble breathing. So what ends up happening is you give them a little more oxygen and then they improve. And then, and then a little while later, their oxygen level starts going back down and like, Oh, you know, over the course of a day, over the course of two or three days, they start to need more and more support until they need like a BiPAP machine, which is basically like an external ventilator. You know, it's, it's like those CPAP machines that people put on their face for sleep apnea. Right. Right. Um, until they're, they're basically on that. And then, and then, you know, but they still like really won't complain of being short of breath. You know, they'll be like, I, I feel okay. You know, as long as they have the oxygen on, they feel okay. And then suddenly they'll just deteriorate. They'll just crash. Um, so you're, you're, you're and, right and, now uh, starting to notice you, you, you see something or hear something, whatever it's triggering thoughts of these episodes, right? Yeah. It, it'll trigger like a, just a memory and and even other nurses will do it too. Like, you know, we, sometimes they'll be, they'll talk about, you know, and they'll always talk about like the surge or they'll be like, you know, I, I just remember having all of the IV pumps, you know, like some of them will, will talk about, you know, having extension tubing, you know, and the IV pumps outside of the room mm-hmm. so they didn't have to go inside of the room all the time. And, and just that experience and that frustration, you know, having to gown up all the time, having to, you know, to, to be encapsulated, like, in a, you know, in a, in a Mylar suit all the time. And and those those things those conversations just kind of come and go. It's not like something that we all sit around and talk about, but like in passing, you know, you'll you'll be doing something and and something you do will remind them of something, and then they'll talk about it, and then and then it'll go. Right. Um, You're listening to you don't say. We'll be right back with our conversation right after this. Hi, Drew Zagorski here, and I got two words for you: direct mail. To a business owner, those are two of the scariest words in the universe because they only bring to mind big dollar signs, little return on investment. Well, there's a better way to reach and stay in front of engage your customers, prospects, and cohorts. Now, here's two more words, constant contact. Yep, I've used them for years for my businesses, and the bottom line is this. It works. In fact, if you go to you don't say.net, you can sign up for my email and you'll never miss another episode of You Don't Say. For pennies per contact as compared to direct mail, I can reach and connect with up to 500 contacts. Yep, 500 contacts for as little as 20 bucks a month. Constant Contact provides powerful email tools that include a library of awesome design templates, list management and reporting, event management, polls, and more, as well as a website builder with e-commerce capabilities. So 
If you're looking for a way to stay in front of your audience, Constant Contact is everything you need. And here, I'll make it easy for you to find them. Simply go to bit.ly forward slash YDS stories. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash YDS stories to start your free trial account today. If you're a dog lover like me and are looking to adopt or foster from a fully vetted placement organization with actual vets on the team, no pun intended, and you live in the Pacific Northwest, you need to know about Must Love Dogs Northwest. Must Love Dogs is a 501c3 nonprofit, all-volunteer organization dedicated to ending pet homelessness. They work to rehome dogs that are abused, neglected, and homeless, or about to be homeless, and those in shelter settings. Must Love Dogs offers spay-neuter services, microchip assistance, training in lieu of surrender, and provides compassion grants for those in need. So, if it's time to bring a new dog into your heart and home as a full-time family member or foster a homeless pup, Or if you want to donate or support a fundraising event or volunteer, give Must Love Dogs a call at 844-364-7690. Again, that's 844-364-7690. Or visit them online at mustlovedogsnw.org. Again, that website, mustlovedogsnw.org. Well, speaking of memories, let's go back to some better ones. Back to... uh, (laughs) around 2012. So now you've married Bettina and she decides that she wants to go back to her family's hometown, Buenos Aires. At this point in time, you were in nursing, but kind of soured on a little bit, you know, the corporate aspect of hospital life. And so you were kind of looking forward to this as a break, right? Yeah. I I feel like that time I, I was working in a transplant ICU in Pittsburgh. Um, and it, it was basically the moment when I realized that, you know, that people could get, I like until then, I didn't know that people could get that sick and not die. Right. Um, which also meant that, you know, like it didn't mean that they were living. It just meant that they were just kind of being there and, and surviving. It, it, it wasn't, you know, like it was just like, there's absolutely no, no quality, quality of life at, at not absolutely not, you know, and, I, and, and there were times where like, I'd go in, and I'd see a patient and I, and I, you know, and, and it was just the look of fear that they had, you know, because they'd been just in the bed suffering, you know, because their family didn't want to let them die. And, and mm-hmm. they were waiting for a liver transplant. They were waiting for some kind of transplant or something, you know, to, to get better, but they just weren't. And the family just couldn't let go. Right. Um, and it was to the point where just going in there to, you know, because they, they pooped or something and you, you want to go in there and change them, you know, like you were making them suffer. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and there's nothing, you know, I would, you would never question the fact that like somebody goes to the bathroom and you clean them up, you know, it's part of like, you know, this, this idea of like making sure that, that someone is being taken care of, mm-hmm. but, but th- those were the moments where I was like, I feel like I'm torturing this person and, and this isn't like a quality of life. I, you know, like I wouldn't want this to be done to me. Yeah. Um, and, and it was that, and it was just also the way hospitals were being managed. I just had a lot of problems with just kind of the idea of like, you know, healthcare being um all about the benjamins yeah exactly that, that's exactly what it is you know it, it just yeah. being like like a, a, an industry you know it just didn't seem right to me right right so so now you you go uh to buenos aires with your wife you know thinking that this is going to be a good break and and it is right it's a good break but at a certain point you start to get a little bit restless um, yeah 
And so you start looking for something to do and you find this theater group and you audition for it. And then what happens? Um, so I, I auditioned for this theater group and at first I kind of thought it was, it was a scam. I was, you know, it, it was just like on a Craigslist this thing. It was like, you know, it had a number and it was like native English speakers, you know, theater company and call for auditions or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I just, I went, I auditioned, I got, I got a part. And then for that year, it, it was basically, you know, we were going from town to town, all over Argentina, all over Latin America. Um, and this group is called the performers, right? The performers. Yeah. Are was, they still was, on the road or are they still active? You know, they, they are, but I think it's, it's a little different now. I haven't really okay. talked to the, to the owner or anybody in a long time, but I, I think they still do uh, performances, but I don't think it's as international as it was before. So, so, so let me back up just a second, you know, even <laughs> further because, Oh, you, you've got a, a life and healthcare and as a first responder, a theater group. What what the hell made you think you could you could audition for a theater group and get in? What background uh, did you have? Um, I mean, I I done like amateur kind of you know in Pittsburgh they did this thing called Shakespeare in the Parks and I auditioned for it. You know, I I, I just I, you know I, I so you weren't I don't know, going I don't exactly know. cold. No, I mean, I performed in front of people before, and I feel like a lot of being a firefighter, being a paramedic, and being a nurse is a lot of, you know, it's, it's very performative, too. You know, you're like, yeah. you know, yeah. as a firefighter, you're in charge, and, you know, you, you show the public this kind of face of, a, not necessarily authority, but of, like, I'm here to help, you know, and, and there's very much that. Um, not that it doesn't come from a genuine place. I just, I, I do think that, you you know, you know part of of showing someone that you can count on them is, is there's a performative aspect to it too. Right. Um, and I, I definitely thought that, you know, okay, well yeah, I'll try this. I, 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 part of it was like, I just want to try it and see if I could do it. Yeah. Um, and then I got a role. Um, so it, it was, it was a big change, but it wasn't, I mean, some of it kind of fed into my acting. I feel like being a nurse fed into my acting very much. And I, yeah. I, I thought that it, it was, you know, it's a strange, but it's still a, a fit that, that helps. So this, this troop, was not necessarily an improv kind of a troupe, but you pushed them in that direction, didn't you? <laughs> um, I, I feel like that was, I, I think uh, that maybe everybody else in the troupe would tell you that was the case, but I feel like it was a mutual understanding where, you know, like we, we, we were just always, you know, it was a year of, of just performing these same three plays over and over and over. And, and towards the end, it was just like, okay, how do we kind of make this new? How do we, you know, do something that is still, you know, because a, a lot of it was using theater to teach English to kids. Gotcha. Is this kind of where you uh, glommed on to the teaching, the language teaching thing? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, that was definitely what I put on my resume to be like, I, you know, I think I could teach English. Um, but but it, it definitely made me, uh, it, it piqued my interest in teaching. So, so it, I feel like within that, you know, it, it's not like I improvised, you know, uh, you know, like I, I kind of like imagined whatever I could, but you know, it, w within the realm of teaching English, you know, you can kind of play with words and, yeah. and, 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 you, gotta make, you know, you use make that to, own, to make right? it fun. Yeah, very much, very yeah, much. Yeah. So there's a lot of stories too, around your time on the road with um, things like Bacani sauce, eating challenges, swimming with, and stingray infested waters. What were, what were all those about? <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So, so the, the, a lot of this came from, I guess, the crew that I was with. I was with four different people on the tour in, in Mexico. This was, this was on our first tour in Mexico. We did three okay. months. We did a total of six months in Mexico, three months uh, before Christmas, and then three months after. Um, and I, I remember that my, in my crew was, uh, you know, is, is this, this guy, Simon, who is from England. Uh, this, the first tour was this girl, Molly from Chicago and this, this girl, Danny from Ireland. And Danny was, was, you know, she was one of my really close friends, right? We have like a very similar sense of humor and, um, you know, a big thing, uh, you know, she, she has a lot of banter, you know, where she, you know, she's, she'll very, she's very much about teasing people. And, you know, you, you, you can't, you can't take yourself seriously around her, which is, which is one thing that I really loved about, uh, which is something that I feel like she taught me just because growing up, I felt like growing up in El Paso, I, I, a big part of it is that you had to kind of take yourself seriously and kind of like act the role, like act tough so that people thought you were tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, she really broke that down. And it was like, you know, like, always about not taking yourself seriously. So we were always having adventures and that was one of them was, it was kind of right. like, we would go and we'd go to, you know, a taqueria, we'd go to like a taco stand in Mexico city and be like, all right, let's, you know, let's see who could eat the most salsa, you know? And I, and I just remember Danny like never ate anything like that. And I, you know, like, I, you know, I'm a Mexican, I grew up eating salsa all the time. So like, right. you know, she, but she would never, you know, she was like, I'm going to beat you. And it was always this competition and I remember the stingray infested waters thing was, uh, it was, what is it, the Sea of Cortez? We were, we were in, uh, Sonora and it, it was, uh, the Sea of Cortez is that little inlet, like, but where Baja California meets, you know, yeah, is, yeah, okay. is on one side and Mexico's on the other. So I, I just remember reading this, uh, in, in like the lonely planet where they were talking about, you know, stingrays and like the best way to, and, and I, this was right around that time that that Australian guy got killed by a stingray. I think oh, that yeah, was the, the crocodile hunter or whatever his name was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Steve, what's his name? Anyway, him. So I remember, so that was in my mind. I remember thinking about that and then, and then reading in the book, like that there were stingrays and I just thought I'm going to get like stabbed in the heart by a stingray. Um, and, and then, like it would, it would talk about the way you had to walk in the water so that stingrays wouldn't attack you. And I remember like bringing that up and then Danny just was, you know, she was just making fun of me about it. Yeah. Um, and so she started kind of bringing up, it was this whole like joke about lonely planet. (laughs) Yeah. She was like, show us how it's, how do you have to walk? And it was just, it was, yeah, yeah, it it was pretty embarrassing. Like, (laughs) well, I gotta say, you know, my own life, I, 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 I don't think I've ever taken myself seriously. And it's so liberating because you can say and do anything. And it's just, oh, that's Drew. That's George. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I've always tried to teach my own kids that is, is because the day you start taking yourself seriously is the day life will suck. Yeah, I agree. I agree very much. So, anyway, so let's get back and <laughs> you survived the the hot sauce and the stingrays, but let's go back to New York again earlier this year. So you've been in the unit now, the COVID unit for several months. And on top of the other frustrations and stresses and worries and concerns we talked about earlier, you know, I mentioned the, the patient advocate thing that nurses are, that's part of the job. Um, Now on top of all that other stuff, if you hadn't already, you're getting some pretty, pretty heavy duty guilt, right? I mean, patient families are asking you to do something and you're at the end of your rope in terms of what you can do. You're like in a corner, right? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of visiting, you know, like as far as like patients who, who family members want to come in and it, it was always, you know, that like walking that tightrope between what, uh, what the hospital can do legally, you know, because at the time Cuomo put that, you know, had like this, like no visitor, just kind of across the board, um, right. no visitors in the hospital. But, you know, I, there was you know, families who had family members die, they want, you know, they need to grieve, you know, it's something that they need to do. Or, or I, I think even just having somebody in the hospital, you know, uh, family members need, need to make the illness real from themselves, you know, mm -hmm. like they need to see it and they, to, you know, otherwise it, it's, it's, you know, it, it just doesn't exist for them. I mean, it does when the loss kind of hits them, but like they need, I feel like there's the part of illness that people have to see, they have to make it real. I think initially in, in the first hospital that I was at, um, I think now like like comparing being at Elmhurst to being at New York Community, I think um, Elmhurst has a policy where a lot of the people that couldn't work during the surge, like social workers, um, you know, staff that, that just weren't part of direct patient care. I mean, um, what they did was they, they repurposed a lot of them and they had them uh, basically walking around the, the, the hospital with them. Um, an iPad on wheels and they would just FaceTime with the families and all they would do was call a family member and then they would, they would, uh, you know, FaceTime with the family and show them who they're, you know, their patient. And then they would just go from room, room to room all day, um, just doing these phone calls. Wow. And I thought that, you know, it seemed like a, a creative way to, to get past the fact that the family members couldn't actually be there physically. So wasn't it also around the same time that you, you were working with a patient and, talking about FaceTiming, he was doing that with his family. And I guess he was pretty much done. He was, he was ready to just let go. Um, he signals to you and tells you that he just let me die. I'm done. And the family obviously is begging him to hang on and you're stuck in the middle of this, right? Yeah. What, that, what was the psychic toll of that situation on you? How did you work that out? Um, yeah, that was something that I, it was unexpected just because I think I misread his gesture. Mm -hmm. You know, like at, at first I thought he was just like, cut the phone call. I don't want to talk. You know, like he, he just kind of like ran his hand across his neck. Okay. Um, and I was like, Oh, you don't, are you want me to cut the phone call? And he was like, no, I, I want to die. And as he was saying this to me, as he was mouthing it to me, because he had a tracheostomy, he couldn't actually talk. You know, right. he, he mouthed the words and I said them out loud. And, and I just like, you know, I didn't, I said it without thinking. And then. So the family uh, hears you say that. The family heard me say, which I think oh they needed God. to hear it. Yeah, but, yeah. but it was, but it, it was just a moment of not really taking into, you know, not really thinking about what I was doing. Um, right. And, 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 you know, it, it was, that moment where like what the patient wants and what the family wants, you know, they just clash together. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a big part of, I mean, that, that was, he was the only patient from that original unit that I worked in that actually got out, you know, he, he, was, oh, he survived. He was the only one that survived. Um, wow. And I, I don't know where he is now, but like, you know, he left, uh, he got like, tr like transferred out to a, like a, a long-term rehab, but, I think that he had just been in the hospital so long that he wasn't with it. And, and slowly, but surely I, I remember that it was the day before and around that day, he just started asking questions like, you know, cause he kept on trying to climb out of bed and he'd be like, you know, I, I can stand up, you know, back off. I can stand up, but he couldn't, you know, right. he couldn't get up. He couldn't do these things. He couldn't breathe on his own. And I think 
little by little, he started realizing that he couldn't. And, and I think that was the day where he was like, I'm really sick and I'm not going to recover from this. Or I don't think I can, or, or my recovery is going to be long. And I don't know if I'm able for it. So how long did that take you to kind of shake off? I, I don't think you ever shake something like that off, first of all. But I mean, you got to get back to work and do your thing. Did you have to take yourself out of the situation for a little while and just go decompress? Um, no, I not, not that day. I didn't, uh, because that when that conversation was going on, I had just got another patient admitted like, a it was like a cardiac arrest patient who came up from the ER who, you know, just needed, you know, I needed to intervene right away. So, you know, I thought like in my head, I thought it was just going to be like a quick conversation that he wanted to talk to his family. Um, and then that happened and, and, you know, eventually the family just kind of, they, they, we're trying to convince him just to wait, wait, wait out the weekend, just won't get, you know, wait until the weekend comes and, you know, just, just think about it. I know it's a lot to take in. And, and eventually he kind of was like, okay, I'll wait. But I, I really couldn't, you know, I, I just kind of let the conversation play out um, yeah. between them, you know, like, and, and I was just trying to like help them talk to him. And, but I didn't really have time to take a break that day just because I remember as soon as I was done with that conversation, I went, you know, I had another patient who, who, who came in and they were crashing. Wow. So yeah, there's, there's a heavy load to probably <laughs> de unpack later, but, um, so let's jump back. I'm glad he survived and, uh, everybody moved forward and thankfully you were able to kind of continue to do your work and do your job. Anybody ever tell you you have ice water in your veins? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think I think every nurse, every first responder has to. Yeah. Uh to to one point or another. But anyway, let's go back to Buenos Aires. Um, I think that's where you were at, where you where you were traveling with the performers. You said they were in Mexico. But again, you've been doing that for a while, and your restless soul starts to speak to you, and you start getting a little frustrated with the trajectory you're on, right? And you meet the guy, a guy named Jared McCormick. And how did he help you navigate to your next chapter? With Jared, we, we really hit it off because we were both in the same place. I think, um, at, at that time I had already separated from my, from my wife and I was just living like in this, uh, they call them pensiones. It's like a pension. It's basically you rent a room and they're like in downtown Buenos Aires, you rent a room, and you share a kitchen and a bathroom mm -hmm. with like nine people. Yeah. So, so I was just like living downtown, uh, kind of off of the money that I'd saved from working in the theater. And, you know, I didn't know anybody in the country, you know, other than the people that I, that I worked at the theater with. And, um, you know, it, it was just coming to a tail end of a, of a long relationship and Jared was too. So we, you know, like we had kind of this, this point of, I guess, this connection in that, that we were just kind of in the same place. So, um, we became friends. We ended out, um, I guess the place I was living at, um, had an extra room and then he, he moved in. So, so we just ended, I mean, it was like a year and we were just like hanging out, exploring the city. But I remember one of the things that he had talked about was that he had come from Taiwan and he was living in Taiwan, teaching English. And, and that was really where I was like, Oh, okay. So I didn't, I didn't know that you could go teach English in another country. I had no idea that you could do that. So, you know, and I was like, well, how did you do it? Um, so, he, you know, he, he just kind of broke it down logistically, like how something like that 
gets done and then he and then he brought up this other one he's like hey there's this other the this other program in spain um where you you go with the ministry of education and, and you're just like a language assistant in in high schools or secondary schools primary schools um helping them teach in english because a lot of the schools in spain um are teaching the sciences uh in english and, and so like they made this move to have like all their teachers teach uh bilingual in spanish and english and then in the 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 community that i got assigned they teach in three languages they teach in catalan um spanish and english so i we just applied and then we ended up getting assigned to the same city and it was an island in the middle of the mediterranean it was in menorca which is okay. you know it's, it's that chain of islands ibiza mallorca menorca formentera so you know, I was on this beautiful island in the middle of the Mediterranean, and I was just, you know, going and teaching art class in English. Right. And so one of the other things around this time now, you, so you're starting to kind of get that juju to go back into academia and teaching and languages. But also during this time, the story is you you were a pretty mean karaoke singer. <laughs> and pe- people would beg you to do Elvis's blues, your Elvis imitation doing blue suede shoes. But your favorite was Bebop Alula, right? Yeah, yeah, Gene Vincent. So um, I know we don't, I know we don't have the music, George. But can you do a few bars? <laughs> and I, I, I'm not a, I, I need, I'm definitely more performative than uh, I'm not a good singer, but I, I could give a good performance. All right. So. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't think I could do a few bars. I might embarrass myself. Yeah. Um, but it it was. I think that's what it was. They didn't want me to sing. They wanted me to perform. I think that's what it was more than anything. I think that it was fun because it was one of the few karaoke experiences that I ever had where there was a live band. That was the one thing that I think Spain uh, Spain did pretty well was that you'd go up there and there was a band, you know, like right. and they were like, all right, we have this list of you know twenty songs and you know you pick whatever you want. You can come up and sing with us. Yeah. Okay, so this is around two twenty seventeen, right? Yeah, and you and you're starting to look at the school thing again, and maybe pursuing a doctorate in teaching. And so you're you're kind of mapping that out in your head, and you think of uh, a guy by the name of Joshua Lund, who was one of your wife's advice uh, thesis advisors, right? Yeah, and yeah, and so you connect with him. Then what? Um, so I, I, when I called him, I was, you know, I, I didn't, for one, I was, I was just kind of calling him to see like, Hey, what classes can I take so that I could be an interesting, uh, you know, MA, uh, masters or PhD candidate, you know, you know, cause I'm bilingual, but I've never taken a, a Spanish class. So I just kind of grew up, you know, speaking Spanish with my grandma, uh, and, and, you know, to, to most people in, in, in El Paso. And, and I, and, you know, writing, reading, I, I learned that on my own, you know, like it was just one day I was like, well, I need to learn how to write in Spanish if, you know, right. um, so I, I, you know, on paper, I felt like, okay, well, nobody's going to take me seriously. Cause you know, I, I, I tell them I'm bilingual. It's, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it on paper. Um, so I just called him to kind of be like, well, I, I, what, what classes could I take to make myself more appealing to a department? Mm-hmm. And he, he was I think he was really surprised to just hear from me. So he, he asked me to give him a call. Uh, they, this was like initially through email. And then he was like, call me. So I called him. Um, right. And then he was like, well, how old are you? He's like, do you have an idea of a project? You know, like, do you know what kind of project you'd want to do for your dissertation? 
you know, it, it was just like mostly questions to see like where I, where I was at with my thinking and what my plan was long-term. He's like, are you planning on just kind of doing this to do it? Or are you going to, you know, do you want to go into academia? Do you want to teach? Right. Um, and then little by little, the conversation started shifting to be like, uh, okay, so, you know, I'm not at Pittsburgh anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah. He's like, okay, well, you know, how would you like, he was like, well, where would you want to go? And I was like, probably the coast, you know, somewhere in New York or, or maybe like out in California or, or, you know, Oregon, right. somewhere, somewhere on the coast probably. Um, but I'd be open to whatever. And, and so he was like, okay, well, he's like, well, how do you feel about the winter? And I was like, well, you know, I lived in Pittsburgh, so, you know, the, I, I can deal with the winter. He's like, but, but, but like worse, you know, like a, a foot of snow, uh, you know, being in the snow belt. Yeah, nine degrees. And I was like, okay, I, I think I could handle it. You know, like it would suck, but I could handle it. He's yeah. like, okay. Um, he was like, how would you feel if, uh, how would you feel about being in a small town? You know, and I was like, okay, well, I think I'd be okay. He's like, okay, wh- how would you feel about being at a Catholic institution? And I was like, okay, well, it's like, you know, I wouldn't mind, you know, it, it wouldn't bother me. You know, I'm, I'm not Catholic, but it wouldn't bother me. And he was like, okay. He was like, would you be interested in coming to Notre Dame? He's like, that's where I'm at now. Um, and I was like, yeah, I mean, like, I, I didn't really know. I, aside from watching Rudy as a kid growing up, I didn't really know much about Notre Dame. I knew it was a good university, but like, I'd never, you know, I, I would have never thought to apply there. Right. Um, so he was like, well, the deadline's in two weeks. Um, he was like, get everything that you can together and so apply. You're used to fire drills, though. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, so basically that's what it was. I, I had to, I had to coordinate, you know, getting letters of recommendation. I had to write a 20 page essay, you know, in two weeks from Spain to try to get everything in on time. And, and then I had to, on top of that, organize, uh, taking the GRE. So I had to fly to Barcelona. I had to fly from Mallorca to Barcelona in the morning, take the GRE and then fly back home so that I could be at work the next day. Um, and I, I kind of coordinated all that in, in, in those two weeks. And then maybe a couple months later, they, they accepted me. They accepted me into their master's program, not into the PhD. So I did, I did the two-year master's first. Okay. Um, yeah. So then, then that kind of brings you to the beginning of 2020 when you went to New York. And to kind of loop this all back, George, you, the, one of the things that the article that I read about you talked about was you're thinking about patients and how they go through COVID and hospitalization. Some of them go closer to death's doorstep than others, but they come out of it and redefine themselves based on that experience, right? So as I was looking at your story and hearing you talk today, isn't, isn't it just kind of a metaphor for your own life about how you went through all of these trials and changes and things like that i think one one of the i feel like one of the differences would main mainly be the redefining i think is is kind of uh i think it's it's a, a little too active i think in a sense that mm-hmm. um i think patients that that get sick and and you know essentially their world collapses around them you know, somebody who, who I can only imagine like this man that I, you know, had the conversation with his family where he was like, I right. want to die. You know, his entire world just collapsed around him. Like right. the person that he was is gone. Right. And imagine um, the outlook on life he has today. Yeah. And, and I think that really the, the, the being able to, to redefine your life is, is kind of the response to that. I think it, it's like, 
you know, how do you, how do you adapt to having your world collapse around you and, and just basically losing the person that you were. And I think that it, it you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't, I don't know if, you know, it, it's a matter of resiliency um, or, you know, if, if it's just uh, kind of trying to, I think, you know, it is, it is partly resilience and part of it is just the way that, you know, people live their lives. Like I mentioned in the beginning, my opening comments about writing your own story. Yeah. Um, you know, every good story wants you, wants, makes you want to read the next chapter, right? Yeah. And if you're living your life in that way that, that you're, you're leaving every chapter open to whatever happens and you're going to, you know, if you get lemons, you're making lemonade or if you get a good break, you're going to make the most of that too. And I think that, uh, is, is what I saw in your story. And, you know, while my daughters are at the beginning of theirs, that kind of, uh, similarity popped out at me right away is how, you know, you weren't defined by anything you ever did, right? But you defined those jobs in your own way. So yeah. you kind of created the definition for them and how you fit into them versus the other way around is George isn't a nurse. George isn't a theater person, right? Definitely. I, I think that that, so it's funny that you say that because I, I, I distinctly remember a conversation with Petina, with, with my wife, uh, and it was in the first the first stages of our move to Pittsburgh, I feel like in my life, like the biggest culture shock that I've ever had was my move from El Paso to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And it, it was, I mean, I've, I've lived in Argentina. I've lived in Spain. I've lived, you know, in South Bend. I went from living on the Mediterranean to living, you know, like in a, a, a frigid art polar vortex winter right. place. Um, and the biggest culture shock I experienced was El Paso to Pittsburgh. And, and I, I think a lot of it had to do with that was that until then, um, I really bought into this idea that my work is what defines who I am. Right. And, and I, I really bought into being a firefighter and like, that was my life. And then suddenly I wasn't, you know, I, I just, you know, like this, this cachet that I, that I used to have as by saying, Oh, I'm a firefighter. But Bettina was like, you know, you, you shouldn't let your job define who you are. You know, that you're not your job. That's not you, you know, you're, you're something else. Right. And, and I just, I just, that really, you know, it was like, she wrote that right into me. Um, and you know, like that's definitely the trace of Bettina that stays within me is like that mm-hmm. remembrance of like, I'm not, well, not my job. I'm not like, you know, and, and it was always trying to, I, I don't know. I, the one thing that I feel like I am is a student. Like I've always like, I love to learn things. I love to learn how to do right. new things. Um, even if it's not gonna, you know, it's not, I, I don't do it to make a side hustle. I don't do it. For, I just do it to enjoy it, you know, like, because I like doing it and I like to sketch and doodle and read, you know, those are things that I like to do. And, you know, I'm dying, you know, we're all dying. So like, why not do things that you enjoy instead of right. trying to like, you know, instrumentalize things that, that are useful. It's a short ride. Have fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> as we wrap up here, George, you ever hear the pivot questionnaire? The, uh, no, I haven't. So one of the shows that I've always enjoyed is uh, Inside the Actor Studio. You familiar with that one? Um, I think I have. I remember hearing the name. I don't think I've ever, I've ever seen it. But. Yeah. Anyway, so actors, performers, theater people come on, and the guy interviews them and talks to them, and they always wrap up with this pivot questionnaire. 
Okay. So it's 10 questions. They all get asked the same thing. So now's your turn. Okay. What's your favorite word? My favorite word, uh, lugubrious. What's your least favorite word? Interesting. What turns you on? Wit. What turns you off? Arrogance. What sound or noise do you love? Laughter. What sound or noise do you hate? Grunting. What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Taylor. What profession would you not like to do? Doctor. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You were wrong. <laughs> okay. So, George, any other final thoughts or comments that you want to share with folks? Tips? Advice? Um, bet on Notre Dame this Friday? Bet on Notre Dame. I feel like you could. it's always safe to bet on Notre Dame in football, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't really think of anything uh, profound to say right now. Okay. Well, George, you're a profound guy, whether you believe it or not. And um, I think you've led a fascinating life. And I really want to thank you for sharing some of your story with us today. Thank you. Um, and I really enjoyed our time together. So uh, thanks for that. And this is Drew Zagorski. You don't say peace. Thanks for listening. If you have a story to tell, shoot me an email to info at youdontsay.net. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories. Thanks again, and see you on the next episode.